Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. This is Eating Crow with Pete Durand. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Eating Crow. I have John McCaskill on the program today, and I've had the pleasure of being on John's podcast. So we're going to flip the mic around and <laughs> find out what makes John tick. Hey, so John, good to be here with you, brother. So glad to have you here. Thank you so much for your service and your continued service to our country. My pleasure. And as I've said before, and I'll continue to say, my service was an honor and privilege on my part. So thanking me for my service. I appreciate that. But it's always something that I look back on as an honor and privilege. And I would do it again in a heartbeat if I had that opportunity. So. Well, it's it's wonderful. I didn't grow up in a military family, so I wasn't exposed to it, didn't get called to it. And it's one of the biggest things. I think I missed that part. I would have loved to have done it. And I think what makes our country and our military so amazing is that we have people with that attitude. Right. I think that's the difference. There are a bunch. I mean, there are the, the men and women that I served beside are some of the most amazing people I've ever known, not just honored and and privileged to serve, but honored and privileged to serve beside them. So. so John's bio and information will be in the show links, but John is a former SEAL commander. So I think they made movies about John. I'm not sure. <laughs> Charlie Sheen was actually modeled after you, I believe, wasn't he? You were the character that he built absolutely, his role. Absolutely. <laughs> By the way, that was such an awesome movie. <laughs> classic. It's a, it is a classic. It's like uh, the top gun of the SEAL teams. It was. What a great PR thing for the SEALs. So I have a nephew who is uh, an EOD Navy diver and uh, Special Forces just retired, uh, spent a lot of time overseas and total badass guy can run like four minute miles all day and just has that little twinkle in his eye. Like, yeah, I can do that. I wish, I, wish we could, I could still run that fast, man. <laughs> Not that I was ever able to run four minute miles, but just being able to run fast. That's, yeah, uh, that, those days are long gone the past. as well. Yeah. <laughs> So, John, uh, you've got a lot of different things going on, and I'm going to touch on all of them. What called you to do this? So, definitely not a path, no pun intended, that, mm-hmm. uh, that I had seen myself taking. But in the military, in the, specifically in the SEAL teams, my first deployment was a pretty bad one. It was the one that the Lone Survivor movie and Booker are all about. Uh, lost a lot of friends uh, and also uh, battled with some survivor guilt from that because I'm still here and why are, why are they not? And I actually didn't realize that it was survivor guilt that I was struggling with for the longest time. I just kind of boxed all the emotions away and moved on. So I actually, if you guys know the story there, we ended up losing 19 service members. So 11 SEALs and eight Army Night Stalkers. And I flew back. I escorted Mike Murphy and Danny Dietz, their bodies, back to the States and uh, flew into Dover Air Force Base, got them into where they needed to go. And then I rented a car and I drove home and I'd been deployed for, I don't know, four, four or five months at the time. Drove home. And the first thing I did was drive to see Danny Dietz's widow and didn't even go to see my wife or anything. Went straight to her house, gave her the flag that... Danny Dietz's uh, body had been uh, brought back to the base in Bagram. Mm-hmm. So Bagram Airfield in Afghanistan. Murph and, and Danny were brought back in, in their bags and had flags draped over them. And I brought that flag back to Patsy Dietz and spent time consoling her. And then I went home to my then wife, uh, right. since divorced, but uh, went home to her. And 
and I acted like like nothing had happened. One, like I hadn't even been deployed, and two, like I hadn't just experienced that that loss of good friends and and everything else. And I started moving right on to the next next deployment. Hey, what do we need to get ready? What do we need to do to train to get ready? And just boxed all that other stuff away. And I've heard it said that if you box those emotions up or push them down into the basement, they come back with a vengeance. It's like they go down in the basement and lift weights and, and come back. <laughs> well, that's what happened. Wow. Uh, you know, later in my career, they came back with a vengeance and caused some anxiety and depression and, and stress in, in my life. And, and I didn't even know that's what it was that was really causing that. So the Navy did what they know how to do, and they put me on different forms of medication and that medication definitely numbed those problems, the anxiety, the stress, and depression. But it also just numbed me to anything that I enjoyed. So I wasn't enjoying anything, really. Right. And that caused me to end up having some pretty dark thoughts, like, do I deserve to be here? Would the world be a better place without me? And and I knew that I needed to find something else. So I was working through counselors, and that was helpful to a point. I didn't know what I needed to talk about. So, you know, I was talking about the everyday thing and not processing this stuff that had happened uh, years before. And finally, one of the counselors was like, hey, man, I, I want you to really start trying out mindfulness and meditation. And, and I laughed at him and it's like, no, man, doc, I got, I got some real issues here I need to address. I, I don't know about the snake oil that you're trying to sell me. And he showed me the science and the, the data behind it. And as we were discussing before the show, I'm a, I'm a math guy and an operations research guy. So once he showed me that, I was like, okay, now you've got my, my interest peaked, doc, tell me more. And, and uh, he told me about the performance enhancing side of practicing mindfulness meditation in the back of his mind, knowing that I would jump at that and then would help with the other things. So I started practicing and uh, a couple of weeks later went back in and I was like, doc, it's not really helping me. And I think we may have even discussed this before, but he's like, well, that's like going to the gym for two weeks and thinking that you're going to come out looking like a bodybuilder. And I was like, okay, so yeah, points taken. So I went back and continued to practice just simple app that I, I downloaded and was practicing on that. And about two months later, I was starting to notice that I was enjoying things more. I was starting to notice that I was paying more attention to my surroundings and just everything that was happening in my life. The people in my life, I was paying attention to the conversations we were having rather than as they're talking at me, just being completely elsewhere. And then I was able to come off the medication. And at the same time, as I came off of that, those dark thoughts kind of went away. And also the bubble to the surface during some of those meditations was I've got this survivor guilt that I haven't processed. I have to, now this bubble to the surface came out of that basement and I was able to go into the counselors and be like, hey, look, this is what I need to process. And I got through that, got over it. And I feel that I owe quite literally my life to the skills of, of mindfulness and meditation. And so the way that I am giving back is by paying it forward and introducing other service members to these practices because I think they're vital. I mean, you may be perfectly happy and living a fulfilled life, but it can take you to the next level too and, and really just kind of settle the mind and allow you to focus on what's important. So that's why I am with Veterans Path, but Veterans Path was actually founded in 2008 by two women in Berkeley, California. It was originally called Honoring the Path of the Warrior. And, and then in November of last year, 
uh, they turned over to myself and Dave Drake. Dave is the executive director and I'm the deputy executive director. And they said, hey, you know, we've taken it to where it is. You guys take it on to Veterans Path 2.0. And Dave and I were like, okay, well, we're going to come up with a strategy and it's going to look like this and that. And then COVID hit and <laughs> we've had to readjust. So we're, we're still working uh, with veterans, but it's in a, a virtual setting. And we plan on, once COVID is behind us, plan on getting back to the in-person retreats where we're teaching these skills to in-person, but we will also keep the virtual side as well. So that's a little bit about me and how I found mindfulness and meditation, and then specifically what Veterans Path is all about. It's really insightful, John. And I think the fact that you can relate to what these people are going through helps you instantly add credibility and have them understand it can work. Right. Right. Yeah. yeah. Telling your story and saying, look, here's where I was. Here's where I am now. And these are the tools I use. And the fact that you're pulling people off the medications is so important. The military is not a counseling service or, or anything like that. So they, they do what they need to do to get their service members back in a capacity where they can serve. They do their best. Now, I'm not faulting the military. The medications definitely helped with getting back on track and being mm-hmm. kind of more mission focused, but it also did numb the joy. And I just felt like a kind of a empty shell of, of who I had been. And I think that medication, there are definitely still times and places where they, they serve a purpose. If your listeners are on any of those, please don't, don't take it as though I'm saying that is not for you. I am not a medical provider mm-hmm. or any type of clinician in that, that sense, but it worked for me to come off of it by practicing meditation and mindfulness. Well, and mental health is becoming much more of a publicly acceptable topic to talk about. And it's, I believe, one of the most complex forms of healthcare. I mean, it is it is so complex and so difficult to understand because you can't identify, well, there's a wound. I will do surgery or put a Band-Aid on it. It's really right. hard to get to the roots. And the medical side of it, the medication aspect of it, in, as you described, and, and I'm not a doctor as well, but I did stay at a Holiday Inn Express last night, so I feel qualified. <laughs> I knew that was coming. I knew it. <laughs> in some situations, it does allow you to suppress the symptoms so that you can, you can start to treat the root cause. Yeah. And, yeah, and it, it takes the yep. bounce up. Yeah. And it, and it worked sure. for you, right? It got you from point A Good. to point B and, and then the evolution. And I also, I just want to address that stigma too, right? That you mentioned um, mm-hmm. that surrounds mental health is uh, so many people and, and it's, it's definitely gaining acceptance, like you said, but in the past, if you go and talk to a counselor or if you go and seek any type of treatment that you're seen as weak. Sure. And, and honestly, I think it's the exact opposite. If you realize that you have something going on, and you go and, and address it, that takes a lot of strength to stand up and say, I need help. Raise your hand. Mm-hmm. I need help. And it's important to do that. And as leader, you know, I was a leader in the, in the military. As leaders in the military, as leaders anywhere, I think it's important that you make it known that seeking mental health support is a sign of strength. And it's going to make that person better, which ultimately makes your organization better. So mental health maintaining and improving mental health is just like maintaining and improving physical health. Yeah. When somebody goes to the gym or goes on a run, everybody applauds them and says, good job. You're keeping in shape. You're keeping your body physically straight and everything. But if somebody goes and and like, Hey, I'm going to go see a counselor in the back of it, they may not say this, but in the back of a lot of people's minds, they're like, Oh, that person is off the rocker, which is completely not true. 
So I just want to make sure we address that uh, before we moved on. That's a great analogy. I don't know. I don't think people feel that way, right? The visible aspect of working out physically, there are a lot of accolades around that. But if yeah. you're taking care of yourself mentally, it's not. And one thing you said in your story that really hit home for me is you didn't even know what your issue was. Right. Yeah. Right. I mean, because I had boxed it up. And yeah. I was if, like, I'm, I'll process that later. Yeah. And I didn't even know what it was to process. So if you're 50 pounds overweight, you can see it in the mirror. Yeah. But if you have something, deep, by the way, that might be caused by something else as well. Right. But True. at least yeah. you know what to go after. So, John, I'm, I'm curious. Obviously, when you served and you came back and experienced the things you experienced, somehow, even during those dark times, you were able to make it through it, right? Even before you started getting help, you were somehow still pushing forward. There's got to be a form of strength there that, that you either inherited or learned from or were born with back in your past, right? So one of the things I'm always curious about for people that have served, particularly in, in special ops, tell me about your childhood. I mean, what was it about you as an athlete or your parents or your siblings or where you grew up that said, I could do this. I mean, what, what, what called you into the military to begin with? Yeah. So I'll back up my childhood. I was one of five kids, the fourth child I had three older sisters and a younger brother. And I was born in South Africa. All five of us were born in South Africa. My parents were born and raised in South Africa and actually go back several generations on both sides. My parents decided when I was seven years old that they saw the country starting to head downhill. It had been heading downhill for a while, but apartheid in South Africa, they, they didn't agree with that. And then the the other side was in South Africa at the time, conscription was a thing So for, for men. So my parents didn't want me to uh, have to be drafted into the military, into the South African military. When I graduated from high school, we flew Whoops. over here <laughs> and, and then I voluntarily joined the U.S. military. <laughs> But hey, at least I had a choice in the matter. Right. Yeah. So we moved over to Louisiana when I was seven years old, grew up there in a small town, in north central part of the state called Ruston. And I played various sports until I hit a pretty good growth spurt and lost all my coordination. So I played baseball and basketball and football. And then, and then the coordination went out the window and I started running and that was my sport. So track and cross country. And I had a coach that I consider to this day almost like a second father. I still stay in touch with him and I still call him coach. 43 years old now and I still text him regularly and I call him coach. But I think he and the, the track and cross country workouts and the work ethic that he helped to develop laid a foundation for me. I remember specifically there were a few races where you know some of us had maybe not run our best after the race, he wouldn't talk to us because he could see that we hadn't done our best. We would run a race on Saturday and then on Sunday, we would run like an easy recovery run. But after those races, he would have us lining up at the bottom of a hill and run to the top of the hill over and over and over. And he was like, you know why you're doing this? Because you quit on that hill in that race. You're going to learn how to run up this hill and you're going to learn to dig deep. And then I think that kind of mentality tapping into a, I mean, we're talking about deliberate discomfort and Jason Van Camp before this, mm -hmm. and I won't make this all about JVC, but <laughs> that definitely put me into a level of, of discomfort. And I learned to be there and I learned that you could push yourself way further than you do mentally. Your mind will stop before your body does. But if you're able to push past that, you can do far more than you ever thought you could. So anyway, that, uh, that kind of laid the foundation for, I guess, I guess a work ethic, for lack of a better term. 
And then the military, I wanted to serve and give back. And so the, the military just jumped out at me as a, as a good option. We also didn't have a whole lot of money, five kids. My, my dad was an architect and he wasn't licensed at, with the same license level that he had had in South Africa. So he wasn't working uh, as, and he wasn't making as much as, a, as an architect that had gotten their certification here in the States had. We were living on a, a shoestring budget. And I didn't have money to go to school or anything. So I was like, I'm going to look at the, the Navy and see if that's an option. That was not my primary reason I wanted to serve. But that was also an appealing, hey, you get a bonus, you do this, you get to go, you get school paid for. I was like, mm-hmm. why not? Yeah. So I jumped at the uh, I jumped at the opportunity to serve in the military. What else did you ask there? <laughs> I think I've answered all of You did. And it's not easy to get into the Naval Academy, right? It's uh, no joke. I, no, I actually, I had applied out of high school. And uh, I got denied. And then I was like, you know what? I'm still going into the Navy. So I enlisted. And then while I was enlisted, uh, one of the officer recruiters saw that I'd done well on my ASVAB. Did, I did well at, at boot camp and at A school. And he recommended that I apply again. And I did. And at the same time, I had a packet uh, submitted to go to, to BUDS, to SEAL training. And I ended up getting my Secretary of the Navy nomination and subsequent appointment to the Naval Academy got all that back prior to hearing anything back from, from buds. So I ended up taking the Naval Academy route. And then you went into buds after that. And then I went into buds after that. So one of the things I, I happen to know, a gentleman named Bo Lasky was a SEAL and, and was an investor in one of my previous companies and actually does investments with former special ops guys. He's formed an investment group with former nice. special operators. Bo reminds me a lot of you, the personalities are very similar, right? People that have seen some things in their life have a very quiet confidence. It's very quiet, right? It's not something you talk about. It's not something you, it's not the first thing you hear, but they just carry themselves differently. And I said, Bo, do you miss it? He said, I miss my team. That level of brotherhood, I've never been able to replicate. Right. And I would agree. Sorry, my eyes itch and I'm going to scratch my eye really fast. <laughs> yeah, definitely not like anything else I've ever been a part of. I mean, mm-hmm. you, you learn to trust your brothers with your life, quite literally. And, you know, something that really showed me how important that team was. And when I say team, I'm spe- specifically talking about my platoons. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I did a couple of platoons as a as a junior officer. And then after that, you kind of work your way up through the ranks and you work with and for more people. And I say for, because I think as a leader, you're working for those people. Anyhow, as a platoon commander and as a member of a platoon, that that brotherhood is, I can't think of anywhere else it was replicated or is replicable. And how that was demonstrated was this summer. So it had been 14 years since I'd seen some of those guys and a teammate had, had Life had gotten to be too much for him, and, and he took his life this summer. And we all, my, my old platoon, got together on a Zoom call to celebrate this guy's life. And it was like we hadn't missed a beat, hadn't seen each other in, again, like 14 or 15 years. And we jumped on there and, and relived some old memories. Uh, one of the guys had called a beer log. You know, if you screwed up in, <laughs> in the platoon, then you buy the platoon a, a case of beer. And uh, he still had that beer log and he, and he was like, oh yeah, John, you still owe for that. And you know, we kind of uh, kind of gave, gave a couple of good jabs. And then also the fact that we were able to come together and, and celebrate a fallen team member and, and his life. We all took a shot, <laughs> a shot of whiskey in his honor uh, at the end of that Zoom call. But it was, it was amazing to see that brotherhood come back. And then it was also amazingly cathartic to get together as a team to celebrate that our down teammates 
life. This summer is when I first became aware of you and, and the work you're doing. And you had made that call out about, I think it was 21 former military people take their lives. And, and how often is that happening? Every yeah. yeah. So 21 or 22 service members and veterans are taking their lives every day. Every day. And that is an astonishing yeah, statistic. It is. It is. And, and when you adjust for age and gender, and even though I'm a math guy and operation, I still don't quite understand this, but when you adjust for age and gender, it's actually closer to 27 a day. Your challenge was to name 21 things you're grateful for. That's right. Yeah. So I went through Project Refit. They had a 21-day a challenge where for 21 days, you rather than doing the push-up challenge, which many of us have seen online, which is great. It raises mm-hmm. awareness to the veteran suicide epidemic. But after that, I don't think it does a whole lot for the people actually going through the challenge. The grateful challenge was for 21 days, you talk about something that you're grateful for and just the attitude of gratitude, how that kind of changed your mind and how you see things, you see things in a more positive light. And then just like the push-up challenge, you would tag somebody else to do it. And we, we had a pretty good crew and I think it's still ongoing. It was, again, Project Refit, James Corbett, who I'd connected with online, uh, they're doing good things with veterans too. So three times a week, they do a Zoom call where veterans and service members can jump on and talk about things that they wouldn't talk about in other settings. It's kind of a, sure. a non-judgment zone, if you will, uh, where where they talk about what it is they've seen, what it is they've done, their emotions, how they feel about it. So it's kind of that safe space. It's amazing what they're doing for veterans with Project Refit and that Grateful Challenge was pretty powerful. You know, John, you mentioned in one of your earlier comments that as a leader, you felt like you were serving the people on your platoon, right? And that was your role. Yeah. When I've read a lot of the books, particularly Deliberate Discomfort, you mentioned by by Jason, and I know you're an advisor for the Mission Six Zero team. One of the things that jumped out at me in that book was that servanthood leadership attitude, right? That is your job. Mm-hmm. And you've been in that yeah. role. You were a SEAL commander. So when you think about stepping from the military world into the civilian world and you think about the other leaders you're around. And now that you're, you know, you're working with veterans path, but you also have a side business called scrum on the go. So you're an entrepreneur, you're a business leader. Tell me about how you feel the character of a leader in a servant role. Do you see it very often in the civilian world or is it just different? Describe what you're seeing out there. So, I mean, I've got to be honest, my experience in the civilian world is in a nonprofit sector. The majority Mm -hmm. of it is in the nonprofit sector. And in the nonprofit sector, you have a lot of people with a lot of compassion and that heart of service. So I I do see a lot of servant leadership in the nonprofit space thus far. I'm not, I'm certainly not an expert on it, but uh, thus far I've seen a lot of it. That said, I do have a couple of side gigs where I work with corporate teams. And there again, what I do with the corporate teams is I introduce mindfulness meditation to them, the corporate teams and the, those who work for them. And again, if, if one of their leaders is bringing me in to teach mindfulness meditation, then they are also in that same mindset where they're servant leaders, where they want to help those who are working for them. So I think my perspective is slightly skewed mm-hmm. in a positive way so that, you know, I want to say that all corporate leaders are servant leaders, but I also know that would be a naive statement. I mean, that would be a naive statement to say about the military as well. That's certainly not the case. But the role in my eyes of a leader is to work for those under your charge. You are there to remove obstacles for them, provide 
time, trust, and top cover for them so that they can get the jobs done. Uh, specifically as an officer uh, in the military, we are there to really allow our enlisted men and women to get the real work done. <laughs> you may have heard from a, an enlisted service member before where they get called sir or ma'am, and they're like, well, no, 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 I work for a living. And I think there's some truth to that. I did a lot of work too, but it was a lot more administrative than you would see in, a, in the enlisted ranks. Mm-hmm. The enlisted ranks are the, are the folks really pulling the weight. They're, they're the sled dogs doing a lot of the real work. Mm-hmm. And if you as an officer aren't clearing a path for them to do that work well, then you're, you're failing. So I think uh, as a servant leader, your job is to provide that time, trust, and top cover for your people. And it has to be done through mutual respect, I believe, as well, right? 100%. Okay. Mutual respect and, and a level of compassion. Uh, I would say empathy, but I, you know, I've, I've talked about the difference between empathy and compassion before. And compassion is basically empathy, but you're wanting to do something about it. So you yeah. take your empathy and then do something. Yeah, compassion so is empathy with compassion. action. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. I want to learn more about this scrum on the go thing you've got working up. By the way, we talked about you have a master's in operations research and analysis, and I'm still a geeky engineer. <laughs> and I will admit that I find therapy and calming of my mind when I have my world in order. 100%. So I yep. see it's an interesting extension of, your, of how you're built. First of all, tell people what a scrum is and then describe a scrum yeah. on the go. Scrum is a, it's a, I won't say a project management framework because I, I know the true disciples of scrum will, will beat me up for using yes, that, they will. That, that, that verbiage. So first off, the word scrum comes from rugby where you're a rugby player or if not, it's the, where you get together on the pitch, you basically all get in a, a jumble and you toss the ball up and you work to move the ball downfield. So that's kind of where the idea, where the name Scrum comes from. And it was founded by Jeff and JJ Sutherland. And it was kind of founded on the, the military's OODA loop, O-O-D-A. Yes. So observe, orient, decide, and act. And that's a loop. So you're continually doing that. They found that the typical project management framework, PMP, kind of the waterfall method, works in some ways and it doesn't work in others. And what they were finding is that a consumer or a customer was coming to these different organizations and saying, hey, I want this. When can you get it to me? And the project management professionals would get together and say, hey, three years will have you what you want. And they wouldn't ever meet with the customer again. And then when, you know, three years later, when the customer's idea of what it was they wanted had changed dramatically, they would come and say, you know, here's that hat that you had ordered. And, and they're like, well, you know, since we talked last, I, I really changed the way that I thought about things. And really what I wanted was a bottle. And so the project management team had spent three years working together to put something together that was completely wrong. So what Scrum does is you meet with the customer more regularly and you do do so in sprints at the end of sprints. So that might be one week, that might be one day, it might be one month. And every sprint you decide, okay, during the sprint, we're going to focus on this and you come up with different tasks that you need to get done. By the end of that sprint, you have a product to present in some level of iteration to the customer and say, okay, you said you wanted a gray hat. Is this what you wanted? And they're like, no, actually, I wanted a, a gray hat with feathers on top or something. I don't know. I'm just using that because it's right here in front of me. <laughs> yeah. Then you can put um, some feathers on it. Yeah. Yeah. So exactly. So then you'd be like, okay, well, next week we'll come back with feathers. Next week, you come back with the hat with feathers on it. And they're like, oh, well, I meant feathers from a crow. 
which is appropriate for the oh, Eden podcast wow. <laughs> instead of Eagles. So then you would go back and change it. But specifically what the Scrum uses is you've got a backlog of items that you want to get accomplished total to get the project done. Then you have a column on a board that has do, hey, what are you going to do during this specific sprint? Then you move things from do column into the doing column. So Mm -hmm. this is what you're focusing on right now. So it keeps you from doing too many different things at one time. That's going to tie right back into mindfulness meditation and kind of de-stressing here in a second. And then finally, at the end of the board, you have a done column. So you move everything from do to doing to done. And that shows you what it is you're getting done. And there's a psychology behind move, like tactile, the actual tactile feeling of moving a sticky from one part of the board to the next, uh, much like checking something off in your to-do list, hit dopamine, ultimately making you more productive. And there's a desire there to get more done. So the Scrum on the Go board basically just takes what was done for teams and at the team level brings that down to the personal level, basically your to-do list but it's organized in a certain way and you can take it everywhere with you. It's not on your phone and it's not on your computer. A lot of people are like, well, I can just do that on my phone. I can just do that on my computer. Well, the beauty of it is that it's not on those digital platforms because when it is, as soon as you open up your to-do list on your computer or your phone, you get distracted by a thousand notifications and you suddenly go down a wormhole on your social media or you go down a wormhole on your email or whatever the case may be. And before you know it, you've burned up an hour of your day. And at the end of your day, you look at your to-do list and you haven't done stuff on it. And that actually can cause depression when you look at your to-do list and you're like, oh man, I didn't get through those 15 tasks today. That can also literally lead to depression. So the reason that I developed this was one, to get my mind in order, because like you mentioned, it does, for me, it helps me When I stay on task, it helps me to settle my mind, just Mm -hmm. like practicing mindfulness and meditation does. And then at the end of the day, when I can see, you know what, I've got the Eating Crow podcast. I did that, got that done. And that's the one thing that I'm focused on right now. And then at the end of the day, I've got, you know, 15 things that I got done rather than 25 things that I partially got done because I was trying to multitask. That makes me feel better. The idea behind it basically just came from, I, I started working with a buddy to implement Scrum with my Navy team, actually based on a, a buddy of mine who had implemented it at his EOD team. He was the commander and he found extreme levels of productivity increase. And I was like, well, well we can implement this at our team. It didn't, didn't catch on as well. Then I, I mentioned it to a buddy. I was like, it'd be great if we could implement this at a personal level. And then we just talked about we basically implemented Scrum to create the Scrum on the Go board. Okay, well, what does it look like? And we went through multiple iterations and initially it looked nothing like this. I mean, and I know it looks simple. I don't know if for those who are listening, it's basically just a folding board that you can put in your briefcase, uh, which sounds simple enough, but it's also got a slim piece of steel in the center for magnets. Uh, it's, it's a dry erase board. It's a little bit more than just a folding board, but the idea behind it is to bring Scrum to people who wouldn't have practiced it otherwise so that they can settle their minds. That's really my big push is so that people can live happier and healthier lives without the distractions or with fewer distractions. That's a little bit, I probably talked way too long about that, but. No, it's old school, but it's really powerful. Like you said, there are some things about the tactile touching and moving of post-it notes or magnets in from one slot to another. And what people don't realize when you create a to-do list in Microsoft Outlook, I use Google tasks. We're a big Google house, right? So those tasks automatically roll to the next day. I don't touch them, which means I don't right. think about them. Now, it's nice because I can drop it in my calendar and I can assign a time and a date to it. 
but sure. the tactical action and you know we use jira jira is a very powerful collaborative yep. it's, a, it's a kanban or scrum board yep. that's really powerful when you have multiple people reviewing global tasks at a team absolutely level. Right. Absolutely. But if you could have your team pull their own individual scrum board in front of them on their desk, because not only do I have the task for that particular project that we're looking at a scrum board for a Kanban board, I've also got to take my kid to the doctor. I've got a softball game on Tuesday. I've got to do these things. Yep. Those all drop into your personal board. And yep. one of the things you mentioned, John, that I think we really need to emphasize with our listeners is the doing slot. Yeah. You want to minimize work in progress, WIP, W-I-P. You don't want to move everything that you have in your do column into your doing column at the same time. No. I mean, do you do this on video as well? Do you put this out on video? I have you on video right here, but he goes yeah. to YouTube for yeah. sure. Yeah. You have so one thing in the doing, doing I've slot. I've got one thing and that's right now, that's what I'm doing right now here with you. So you got one thing or, you know, minimize the number of things that you move from the do into the doing column because multitasking is a myth. There's no such thing. Really what it is. is Other than women. My wife can multitask. <laughs> well, yeah. yeah I, they're definitely better at attempting and definitely putting on a show. They are definitely better than we are as men. Have you seen the comic skit about a man's brain and a woman's brain? I don't think I've seen it, but I've seen covers of books where like the woman's brain is like a telephone cord all bundled because they're, they're constantly communicating sure. and crossing between. And then another one is, uh, I think the men's is like a ball of tape. Or maybe boxes. Yeah, we deal with boxes, each box at one time. Yeah. Which I know can be incredibly frustrating for women. When well, <laughs> the, guy, the comic takes a box. I said, there's the man's brain. And here's a box. And inside the box are other little boxes. Little boxes. So it's Saturday. I'm going to clean the garage. I take out the garage cleaning box and I set it over here. And I clean the garage. Because I can't think about anything else. I'm cleaning the garage. And then I put right. that box back and take out another box. And only one box comes out at a time. And they said, here's a woman's brain. And he pulls out a ball of wire and it's like yeah. shorting out. Everything's connected and tied together. They're doing all these things at one time. Yeah. When, in talking with my wife, how are you doing? She goes, well, I'm thinking about Sammy's got this going on. Vinny's got this going on. Sydney's got this going on. And the ice maker doesn't work. And my mom is, you know, all those things are connected. And I'm like, football. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Going back to the, the myth of multitasking, there's definitely a level of task switching that we can do, but your mind quite literally can only focus on one task at a time. And that task switching that you're doing. So if you got an email over here and you got your phone over here and you got to-do list over here or whatever, as you're switching between those, it takes microseconds to switch and it causes errors. And those microseconds, if you do that hundreds of times through the day, add up and it can actually cause decrease in productivity significant decrease in productivity, which costs money and quality. Mm. Exactly. So it costs quality. So you have end up with, again, going back to the scrum on the go board, you end up with a worse product. So is the scrum on the go board, one of your components to mindfulness for the people you're helping? I don't specifically put it there. I don't want to seem like I'm pushing the, the scrum on the go board when I'm talking to them about mindfulness. It seems kind of salesy, but it is definitely uh, like my wife uses it. <laughs> and when I first introduced it to her, she was like, come on, man, I don't need that. Yeah. And then she started using it. And she was like, hey, my mind is actually way more at ease when I'm using this. That's why I even promote it. I'm certainly not making a ton of money off of this. It's knowing that people are using it to settle their minds. That's the important part to me. And is there a website uh, where people can find these? Yeah, it's on Amazon. I'll uh, put so it in the show notes. For, great. Thank you. You're on Amazon. You're, yeah. You're, you're the next Jeff Bezos. Come on. <laughs> Walmart, look out. Yeah. You're coming for him. That's right. John, when you think about a final message for 
maybe some veterans that are listening to the program or anybody else that is struggling with maybe not even knowing why they're having these feelings, these dark thoughts. What's the recommendation you would have? Where's the first place they can reach out? I would be remiss if I didn't put a plug in for Veterans Path specifically. So you can check us out, veteranspath.org. That's our website. And we are on the different social media platforms that are out there. You can listen to our podcast. We have a podcast associated with it where I interview people that have gone through a litany of um, mental health challenges, or I've got, or I've interviewed teachers of mindfulness meditation or yoga or some type of mental health modality. Uh, so, you know, if you're looking to listen to something that that's a decent podcast, as far as the content, I wouldn't say that the host, the host is not great. I can uh, actually, you've host. been on there. So <laughs> the host is great. And then the message that I'd like to put out is, is you're not, you're not alone. There are people out there that want to help you. There are organizations out there that want to help you, whether it's Veterans Path or some other organization. There are, there are lots of them. You just need to look. Please, please look. And then if you are in crisis, call the National Suicide Hotline. And then if you're not in crisis, as a veteran, put that number in your phone. Put it in your phone so you can share it with somebody who may be in crisis. Mm-hmm. It's 1-800-273-TALK. 1-800-273-TALK. That's it. And the last thing you want to do is, if you are in crisis, having to Google that number. If you have it in your phone, you can use it in your own case or share it with others immediately should they reach out and say, hey, I'm in crisis. I'm considering hurting myself. So lots of people are out there wanting to help you. You're not alone. Look for help. And two, if you are in crisis, please call the National Suicide Hotline. Well, John, I, I'm grateful for the time you've given us and also sharing your story about you know your journey. And My pleasure. It's powerful. I think also it shows people the type of sacrifice that you and your fellow military veterans have gone through and how, as a country, we need to be more aware of how we can help, right? Listening, participating, helping you share your cause and champion it. I think it's a great way for the country to get back for the things you've done. So, Well, thank you. Thank you very much. Again, I appreciate what you're doing, helping to spread the word. And thanks for coming on my show. So for those who are listening here, if you want to hear Peter's side on the other side, uh, listen to the Veterans Path podcast and listen to what he has to share on that side because it's uh, definitely worth worth your time. I think it was only like a five-minute episode, though, which you cut all the useless stuff out. <laughs> <laughs> John, it's been great. I uh, really appreciate it. Hope you and your family have a wonderful holiday season and uh, best Thanks of luck in, in everything you're doing. Same to you. Thanks again. I appreciate it. Awesome. Take care. Thanks for checking out Eating Crow. Like and subscribe so you never miss a video.